If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I'll, I'll wear a male car with his hands for a coffee table and just, just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Nettie Smith is one of Australia's most infamous and feared criminals. Partnering with the likes of Graham Abbo Henry and Christopher Mr. Rentakill Flannery, Nettie tore through Sydney's underworld in the 1970s and 80s, robbing, raping, selling heroin and murdering with near impunity thanks to a green light given to him by corrupt detective Roger Rogerson. Nettie Smith has been described as an arrogant but charming manipulator with fearless determination and an insatiable desire for money and power, as well as an armed robber, cold-blooded killer, vile gang rapist and heroin-stealing maggot. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to loads of other episodes, including our... um, Hauntingly beautiful. Hauntingly beautiful (laughs) early stuff. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. Mm -hmm. Now... This is interesting, isn't it? We've got a special today. We do have a special. We've decided to combine forces and do this special on Nettie Smith. Now, this was suggested to us by one of our beloved patrons, Sarah Campbell. So this is for you. Okay, Tara, let's get murdery. 
Arthur Stanley Nettie Smith was born on November 27, 1944, the bastard child of married 19-year-old Elsie Smith. With World War II at its height, Sydney was teeming with American servicemen and Elsie had indulged in a fling with an American sailor. Despite the tension that this caused with her husband Edwin, they continued on with their marriage. Nettie would never meet his biological father or even know his name. Elsie nicknamed Baby Arthur Nettie Noodle after the Mother Goose nursery rhyme. Would you like to hear that? I would like to hear you do it, please. Okay. Nettie Noodle nipped his neighbour's nutmegs. Did Nettie Noodle nip his neighbour's nutmegs? I heard he did. If Nettie Noodle nipped his neighbour's nutmegs, where are the neighbour's nutmegs Nettie Noodle nipped? I believe he nipped way more than their nutmegs. Well, this will be the extent of Elsie's affection for Nettie. Elsie was a shitty and disinterested mother, but that would not stop her from going on to have three more children, who she also ignored in favour of going to bars and getting her drink on. This meant that Nettie and his half-siblings were shunted to their hatchet-faced grandmother, an awful woman who beat the Smith kids and took a particular dislike to Nettie, whom she despised and considered her bastard grandson. She would constantly mock and tease him and give him a hiding when he reacted. The old crone would then lock him in a cupboard for hours on end. One day, Nettie decided to fight back and punched his nana right in the chops. Not to be outdone, Grandma Ma found an ally in Nettie's half-brother, Edwin Jr., who would also beat him up. By now, Nettie had learned that violence was power, and if he was going to survive, he was going to have to fight back even harder. Nettie grabbed a knife from the kitchen and stabbed his brother through the hand. His grandmother, seeing the opportunity, went to the cops and had Nettie hauled in. At only 11 years old, Nettie was taken to Mittagon Boys' Home, where he'd spend the next year. We all know the stories of how taking children away from their families and putting them in kiddie jail can fuck them up for life. But this wasn't the case for little Nettie. Life was tightly regimented in little boy prison, but Nettie was given special attention, something he had never received before. He thrived under the institution's rules and boundaries. He played sport, made friends, and felt safe for the first time in his life. But it wouldn't last. After a year, Nettie was discharged and returned to the unloving embrace of his fucked-up family, where he was once again the punching bag for his demented grandmother. Twelve-year-old Nettie did not stick around and decided living on the streets was his best option. He started sleeping rough, but it wasn't long before Nettie fell in with a tough crowd and began living with a sex worker. By the age of 16, Nettie was an accomplished thief, street fighter and pimp, and was well and truly on a copper's radar. He was pimping out a 27-year-old sex worker when police busted him and sent him to another boy's home. This time he was hauled off to Tamworth Juvie Jail, a brutal and sadistic place run by hardened prison officers. Here, the last tiny vestiges of a happy and optimistic boy were beaten out of him. This would be the first, but certainly not the last semester, he would attend Villain University. After nine months of getting the living shit kicked out of him, Nettie was released. His childhood well and truly over, now stood a man simmering with rage and ambition, wearing an eye-catching antisocial personality disorder on his sleeve. Nettie was now a mountain of a man standing at six foot six inches tall and weighing over 230 pounds. His favourite saying was, walk tall and fuck them all. With his mug set to a permanent snarl, he was ready to punch the stupid world right in its stupid face. 
Not satisfied with being a cunning young thief and bruising thug, Nettie thought it time to step into some big boy criminal activities. He decided to diversify by getting into a spot of burglary and grand larceny sprinkled with a few home invasions. Problem was, he was shit at it. At 18, he got busted and was sent to Long Bay Jail for four years. Another stay at Villain University saw him make lasting friendships with his future gang members. Here, Nettie learned how to break open safes, steal cars, and most importantly, not get caught. In 1967, Nettie was out of jail and using the new skills he'd learnt. He began running amok in Sydney's inner suburbs as a thief and violent standover man. Graduating from regular criminal to vile criminal, Nettie and his gang attacked and gang-raped a young single mother in the Sydney suburb of Petersham. They had pushed their way into her home, threatened to harm her baby, and then they each had a turn at raping her. At one point, the men held the defenceless baby up in the air by its ankles to stop the woman they were raping from crying out. Later in a police lineup, the young mother identified her rapists. Nettie Smith retaliated by spitting in her face and screaming at police, I didn't rape the filthy bitch, it was a fair fuck. Wah, asshole. Um, did he really spit in her face? Yeah, well, they didn't have glass between them in those days. In fact, a lot of the time... Uh, they had to face their accusers. Sometimes they'd shine a light in, in the uh, the criminal's face so they couldn't make out who was identifying him. But a lot of time they didn't even do that. Yeah, and there was um, nothing separating them. So they could right. actually spit in a victim's face. That's right. That is so bad. Especially for rape victims, I I'd know. say. Mm. While it's common for gang rapists to spread the blame between themselves to lessen their feelings of guilt, Nettie Smith blamed the victim. In his world, what he did to her was fair and her suffering meant less than nothing to him. The brave woman stuck to her story, endured countless death threats and multiple court hearings before Nettie and his gang were convicted. Nettie was sentenced to 12 years back in Long Bay Jail, where his growing reputation made him a powerful man, feared not only by other prisoners, but by the guards too. In 1975, 30-year-old Nettie Smith was free again after seven years in jail. The penny had dropped with Nettie. He decided he didn't want to go back to prison and realised he needed to rely more on his cunning and charm than just his thuggish ways. He was only on the outside for a few months when he met 17-year-old Deborah Bell. Debbie would be the love of his life. Nettie bought her flowers, told her jokes and eventually charmed the pants off her, quite literally. Debbie would later say of Nettie, I honestly don't know what attracted me to him. He'll tease and say it was his muscly body and his beautiful big blue eyes. I guess the gang rape charge couldn't have uh, Yeah, helped. I would have thought that would have um, kept the panties family on. Um, yeah. but, um, well, you know what, though, he lied and said that he didn't do it. And yeah. she's a kid. She's like 17. So she would have been like, oh, I believe you, Nettie. You've got really nice blue eyes. When she would ask Nettie about his work, he would say, the less you know, the better. And that was good enough for Debbie. They set up house together in Alexandria and started a family. Besides the usual thieving, pimping and armed robbery, Nettie became involved in strong arm debt collecting as the standover man for drug dealer Murray Riley. But by the mid-1970s, Sydney streets were awash with China white and there were millions of dollars to be made. Nettie pounced on this, moving into heroin trafficking himself. By the late 70s, he was making his way to the top of Sydney's underworld, raking in millions of dollars and smashing his competition. He initially distributed heroin imported by Murray Riley's syndicate before setting up his own with William Sinclair, Warren Fellows and help from a dirty subset of the New South Wales police force. 
Nettie knew that he needed those corrupt coppers on his team if he was going to stay out of the big house. Around this time, it's believed Nettie was called upon by his mates in blue to do some very dirty work for them. Shirley Finn was a brothel keeper and well-connected businesswoman who was shot dead on the evening of June 22, 1975. Her body was found in a fancy ball gown and expensive jewellery, slumped over the wheel of her white Dodge Phoenix at the Royal Perth Golf Course the next morning. The mother of three was killed just two days before a tax hearing when she had been threatening to expose illegal dealings by a number of high-profile Perth politicians, businessmen and police. At the 2017 coronial inquest into Shirley's murder, Detective Boland told the Perth Coroner's Court that while working in the fraud squad, he arrested a man known as Harold Bryan Stevens about five weeks after Shirley's untimely demise. Boland said that the man's boyfriend, Keith Allen Lewis, had asked him to cut a deal for the charges to be reduced in exchange for information about who killed her. Lewis told Detective Boland he knew Nettie Smith had flown to Perth using his mother's maiden name on the night of Shirley's murder and had plans to meet her at a hotel near the Perth Concert Hall. He said Shirley had other arrangements that night but cancelled them because she fancied Nettie. Ugh. Boland told the court he approached his superior, Don Hancock, to ask if he should cut a deal. Hancock authorised a deal, but when Boland passed on the information, he was told by Hancock, just don't do anything with it, so he dropped it. At the inquest, Coroner Barry King said he was faced with so many potential suspects and the evidence related to each of them variable that it will be difficult for him to determine any one person to have pulled the trigger. He did come up with a short list, though, Tara. And, of course, Nettie was on it. Yeah, there were five people on it. Nettie was four of them. It was alleged that Nettie was flown to Perth and paid $5,000 to kill Shirley and stop her from revealing unlawful dealings by police and politicians. Despite two cold case inquiries, Shirley Finn's murder remains unsolved. On Nettie's 32nd birthday in 1976, after a particularly violent armed robbery, Nettie was arrested again. But this time, it was not a setback. It was an opportunity. For you see, Barney, Nettie's arresting officer was the king of corrupt cops, Detective Roger Caleb Rogerson, otherwise known as Roger the Dodger, who we covered in episode 29. Dodgy Detective Rogerson immediately saw the potential in young Nettie as an informer and, more importantly, as a cash cow. But Nettie and Rogerson grew to be more than just in business together. Lovers. No. no. Over the coming years, they would socialise together and spend time at each other's houses with their families. Nettie and Roger were best mates. They even made each other some sweet friendship bracelets with coloured beads. Still waiting for mine from you. No, I made it, but then I, I thought against it. Nettie's girlfriend, Debbie, delivered weekly envelopes of cash to Rogerson on Nettie's behalf. In turn, Rogerson would give Nettie a heads-up on police raids and tell him of his competitors, which Nettie would promptly squash. Rogerson would even drive Nettie in a marked police car to do armed hold-ups and then drive him home afterwards. It seems that Roger Rogerson invented villain Uber. By 1978, Nettie Smith was the biggest heroin dealer in Australia and part of a brazen multi-million dollar drug syndicate operating between Bangkok and Sydney, which included his good mate, Graham Abbo Henry. 
Henry was given the racist nickname Abbo, which is derogatory slang for Aboriginal because he had tanned skin, despite the fact he didn't have any Indigenous Australian blood in his ancestry at all. You probably know this, Barney. Um, it was very common uh, for people in like the 1950s in Australia to call their black dogs and cats the N-word as a name. Neville. Terrible name. I know. Can you imagine that? Here, Neville. Nettie and Henry met in 1977 and became literally and metaphorically thick as thieves, taking part in armed robberies together as well as running drugs and drinking their weight in beer. It's been reported that Nettie brought in about 15 kilos of heroin every six weeks from Bangkok. His gang would land at Sydney Airport with suitcases full of smack and walk straight through customs, while bribed officials turned a blind eye. Nettie would dilute this before selling it off, making well over a million dollars a pop. Roger Rogerson would later say of this time, Nettie enjoyed everything about being a criminal. Fast cars, fast women, and just a lifestyle. But they'd give themselves away, these blokes. They've got to have their flash cars. They've got to have plenty of bling and that sort of stuff. I was in there on Parramatta Road there and I saw this nice shiny green Rolls Royce roll by. There's a toot of the horn and there, sure enough, it was Ned. In October 1978, a police raid in Thailand brought Nettie Smith's narcotics operation to a stop when Bangkok police arrested Sydney rugby league star Paul Hayward, Warren Fellows and another associate who were in possession of 8.5 kilograms of heroin. Paul Hayward received a 30-year sentence while Warren Fellows received life. Hayward was imprisoned in Lard Yao Men's Prison. He was released on April 7, 1989, after being granted a royal pardon for health reasons. Hayward had become a heroin user during his time in prison and contracted HIV. He died in 1992 of a heroin overdose. Federal police arrested Nettie. He looked to be facing a very long jail sentence, except that the heroin they seized had somehow become contaminated. When it came to court, the forensic evidence didn't stand up and the charges were thrown out. Nettie and Rogerson had chucked some cash at the problem. All it cost was a bit of money to the right people. Nettie escaped a lengthy prison term and he was sentenced to just two and a half years. Now, Nettie felt a little bit bad because he and Debbie had a three-year-old daughter and from behind bars, he asked Debbie to marry him. Nettie and Debbie were married on February 2nd, 1980 at the very sexy and romantic Remand Centre at Long Bay Jail. It was a short service followed by a spot to finger food and then 10 minutes later they were out the door. Toward the end of 1980, Nettie was freed from jail again. He decided to grow the fuck up, become an attentive father, quit his criminal empire and settle down with a 9 to 5 job as a cashier at the local Kmart. No. He did not do that. No, he didn't. Nettie Smith brazenly re-established himself as a drug lord with 10 dealers under him. One of them was young King's Cross criminal Warren Lanfranchi. He was a wild man, well known to police and other crims. Warren Lanfranchi liked to ride his motorbike around the bar at the Broadway Hotel. Mm-hmm. But he had fallen out of favour and now Warren was not a popular boy. In 1981, Warren Lanfranchi was a wanted man after he tried to shoot a cop. What would happen next would make Nettie a national celebrity and Roger Rogerson the most famous detective Australia had ever seen. Lan Franchi was considered a whirling dervish of trouble. He allegedly shot at police and robbed other dealers. He was also a standover man who worked for Nettie. Lan Franchi had not only fucked up an armed robbery, but had also stolen from one of Rogerson and Nettie's drug couriers. He had to get knocked. And Rogerson was the one to do it. 
After all, he'd killed two crims in the line of duty already. Less than three hours after shooting Lanfranchi, Rogerson signed a seven-page statement of his version of events. It said that at 2.30pm on Thursday, May 14th, Senior Constable Walker was patrolling Lyons Road, Dremoyne, when he observed a green Holden Commodore run a red light. He followed the car and saw two men in the front of the vehicle. The constable stopped the car, and as he approached the driver's side, Lanfranchi, who had apparently been lying on the back seat of the vehicle, sat up, pointed a gun at the constable, and pulled the trigger. The pistol misfired, and he tried to recock while telling the driver to go. The car sped away. Then at about 2pm on Thursday, June 25th, it was logged that an informant contacted Detective Sergeant Rogerson, stating that he wished to see him urgently. The informant told Rogerson that Lanfranchi had approached him offering to pay $30,000 to police so he wouldn't be charged with a bungled shooting. The informant stated that Lanfranchi had said that he would not surrender and he was packing a 9mm Smith & Wesson down the front of his pants. And he had boasted that he would shoot it out with police. Yet the meeting went ahead anyway. At 2pm, the informant contacted Rogerson, saying that he was with Lanfranchi and they'd chosen Danga Place Chippendale as the meeting place. The informant apparently stressed that Lanfranchi was in a highly agitated state. Members of the armed hold-up squad were deployed in various positions in the vicinity of Danga Place, the police log says. At about 2.50pm, Rogerson is said to have seen Lanfranchi walk towards him. Lanfranchi, on becoming aware that he was surrounded, said to Rogerson, You fucking tricked me. This is a fucking ambush. Lanfranchi allegedly pointed the gun at Rogerson, who then fired two shots in quick succession at him, both shots striking him, and he stumbled back and fell into the gutter. Lanfranchi was dead. Rogerson thought he was in the clear. After all, there were 18 other police in and around Danga Place at the time Lanfranchi was shot. Lanfranchi was a wanted man, a convicted armed robber, and he had openly tried to kill a cop. Plus, an informant had told Rogerson that Lanfranchi hated cops and would shoot it out with the armed hold-up squad. Can you guess who the informant was, Tara? No. Nettie Smith. Ah. Who years later claimed he was full of remorse about leading Lanfranchi to the slaughter. Yeah, like the the whole um, sequence that we just described is from uh, like a log written by Rogerson. So the facts of the matter are not necessarily in it. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, yeah, it was definitely an ambush. Well, Rogerson would have gotten away with it had it not been for Lanfranchi's girlfriend at the time, an articulate sex worker named Sally Ann Huckstep. 26-year-old Sally Ann was a Sydney private schoolgirl who fell into heroin addiction and prostitution. A little over a month after her boyfriend was shot, Sally Ann and a lawyer met with two detectives from Internal Affairs. She detailed a string of allegations against New South Wales police, including forced confessions, bribery and the cold-blooded execution of her boyfriend, Warren Lanfranchi. After she documented her allegations to Internal Affairs, she did the unthinkable – and in a very brave TV appearance, claimed Rogerson was dirty. She became a fearless anti-police corruption whistleblower. Did Warren try to take his gun that Saturday morning or Saturday lunchtime? Oh, God, no. How do you know, Sally, that he didn't have a gun in the car, that he didn't pick it up on the, the path as he walked out, that he didn't have it planted somewhere? Because he left the gun at home and I had the gun. It was a 9mm Smith & Wesson automatic pistol. When the police become judge, 
jury, an executioner, then somebody has to speak. Somebody has to come forward. Somebody has to start somewhere and stop it. A 1981 inquest into Warren Lanfranchi's death saw Rogerson's version of events accepted and he was officially cleared of wrongdoing in the shooting, despite the claims of Sally Ann Huckstep that her boyfriend's death was a setup. She was adamant that he had left home unarmed with $10,000 in cash down the front of his pants. Nettie's reward for his testimony was the holy grail of the underworld, the green light. Nettie and his crew could now do any robbery and sell all the heroin they wanted and have complete police protection. There were some minor rules. Keep civilians out of it, never shoot cops, and share the riches. Nettie wrote in his autobiography, aptly titled Nettie, There has always been crime and corruption within the New South Wales Police Force, but nothing like it was in the 1980s. I could never have committed any of the major crimes I did and got away with them without the assistance of the New South Wales Police Force. They were the best police force that money could buy. Believe me, because I bought them hundreds of times. Yeah. Sally Ann Huckstep continued her courageous fight for justice for the next five years, calling out Rogerson whenever she could get on TV or in the courts. On February 6, 1986, Sally Ann Huckstep's body was found floating in a pond at Centennial Park by a man walking his dog. She'd been beaten and strangled. The word on the street was she was murdered by Nettie Smith. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Sally Ann Huckstep's murder was not the only one believed to be committed by Nettie during the 1980s, but because of his police connections, the guy was Teflon and nothing stuck. Nettie's alleged to have committed the murders we're about to discuss, but please note he has not been convicted of any of them. In 1983, a drug dealer named Luton Shu was shot dead in the Royal National Park near Waterfall. His dealings in the drug trade were at odds with Nettie's operation. Rumour has it, he snuffed him out. Michael Daniel Chubb, who went by the name of Danny, was a seaman who brought heroin in off the walls for Nettie Smith and his BFF Henry. The three men had been seen drinking at Danny's local pub, the Captain Cook at Miller's Point, mere minutes before Danny was shot dead around the corner on November 8, 1984. Danny was gunned down with a three fifty seven Magnum and a shotgun as he stepped into his green Jaguar. His murder was made the subject of a special New South Wales Police Task Force investigation and later an inquiry by the National Crime Authority. It is supposed that Danny was murdered for having loose lips. Being a seaman, he probably knew they sink ships. Have you noticed that every car we mention's green? <laughs> What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> green cars in the 80s. Yeah. That's the colour to have. It really was. On the evening of September 1st, 1986, male model and purported drug mule Mark Johnson went missing. It's believed he was murdered by Nettie after going to pick up some money he was owed from dodgy-as-fuck lawyer Val Bellamy, who'd asked Nettie not to shoot him 
as he didn't want to get blood on his wife's new carpet. Instead, Nettie garroted Mark with a cord. Mark's body is rumoured to have been buried in the sandhills along Botany Bay, but he has never been found. Yeah, that stretch of beach near the airport there, it's meant to have a lot of bodies. Yeah, I know. More bodies than sand, I hear. Barry Sugarcroft was a heroin dealer and member of Barry McCann's gang. In August 1987, Croft was hanging out at the Cauliflower Hotel in Waterloo when he received a phone call. After this, he drove off and was intercepted by an unknown killer on City Road near the Lansdowne Hotel and shot dead in his car. On April 12, 1988, 37-year-old drug dealer and career criminal Bruce Sandery went missing. Known as Brucey to his mates, he was last seen at the Zetland Hotel in Sydney, which was a regular haunt of Nettie and his goons. Nearby residents reported to police of hearing three gunshots and seeing three men lifting a man from the road before throwing him into a white van. Two months later, Brucey's body was found in dunes near Botany. And of course, police suspected Nettie. In the mid-1980s, Nettie Smith's gang was in a bitter turf war with a crew run by bookmaker and drug dealer Barry McCann, who owned the Lansdowne Hotel in Chippendale. Blood was spilt that night when Nettie knocked out McCann's eldest son inside the hotel. Later outside the pub, it's rumoured that Nettie's henchmen lined up several of McCann's bouncers at gunpoint against the wall. Nettie then produced a baseball bat from his car and beat each of the men to the ground. Two weeks later, Nettie was leaving the Quarrymen's Hotel in Piermont when one of three men in a parked car opened fire on him, Jimmy Trainer, and Tex Moran with a shotgun. Trainer was critically wounded after being hit by two blasts. Nettie's good mate Henry retaliated for this attack by shooting McCann gang member Terry Ball in the head. Terry survived and in April 1986 ran Nettie down with his car outside the Iron Duke in Waterloo. This inspired Nettie's ride-or-die wife Debbie to chuck a shotgun in the back of the car and drive down to Sydney from their Newcastle home, hoping to protect him. By this point, Debbie had moved out of Sydney and down to the city of Newcastle to raise their children. Nettie spent from Thursday to Sunday in Sydney working his criminal operation, then went home to Newcastle to play daddy for a couple of days. Debbie would say years later, It was just like being married to a doctor. You know, you're married to a bank robber and I know it sounds silly, but basically that's what it is. I beg to differ, Debbie. Being married to a man who takes lives instead of saving them is actually the opposite of being married to a doctor. Wouldn't you agree, Tara? Yep. You've been served, Debbie. Boss man Barry McCann was shot dead in Marrickville on December 27, 1987, after going to a meeting to discuss a bloody reprisal he had planned against a heroin dealer who had cut in on his territory. His body was found the next day near a toilet block in a nature reserve in Marrickville. He had been shot 20 times in the back and the head. One of Nettie's mates was Christopher Mr. Rent-A-Kill Flannery. He was never convicted of any murders, but is believed to be responsible for at least 12. But it was his mysterious disappearance in 1985 that went on to become Aussie legend. In 1974, Flannery and two other men committed an armed robbery on a David Jones store in Perth. They were arrested in Sydney by former Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. It has been alleged that Flannery paid a bribe to Rogerson to escape conviction. In 2004, Rogerson told media, Flannery was a complete pest. The guys up here in Sydney tried to settle him down. They tried to look after him as best they could, but he was, I believe, out of control. Maybe it was a Melbourne instinct coming out in him. He didn't want to do as he was told. He was out of control and having overstepped that line, well, 
I suppose they said he had to go, but I can assure you I had nothing to do with it. Sure, Roger. Nettie and Rogerson were definitely in business with Flannery, mostly the heroin business and the gun business, and he drank with them socially. Nettie even went on holidays with Flannery and his family. Christopher Dale Flannery vanished without a trace on May 9th, 1985. Police suspected Nettie as being involved in his murder, but they couldn't prove it. Oh, there were lots of suspects. Well, yeah, actually, there were quite a few. And if you want that complete story about uh, Mr. Rentakill, see our episode 48. That's it. To say that Nettie Smith liked a beer would be akin to saying that Edmund Kemper was a little bit tall. Nettie drank about 30 stubbies every day and excessive drinking was masking his declining health. In 1981, he'd been diagnosed with the neurological illness Parkinson's disease and it was starting to take hold of him. He was now beginning to display visible tremors down his right side. Rather than looking after his health, Nettie would pop a couple of pills and keep on sinking the piss. In 1986, things would go pear-shaped for Nettie. After various inquests and internal affairs investigations, Nettie's main contact in the New South Wales Police Force, Detective Roger Rogerson, was stripped of his badge for misconduct. The light that had been firmly on green for Nettie flicked on amber and quickly went to a hard red. Nettie's life as a protected species was over and he could no longer enjoy his prized police protection. Problem was, Tara, nobody told Nettie. Yeah, well, even if he did know, greed is what greed does and Nettie being Nettie did more crazy, stupid Nettie shit. He certainly did. (laughs) By the early 1990s, Nettie was making so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. He couldn't spend it fast enough on bling, so he began hiding it in friends' houses all around Sydney. It almost goes without saying that Nettie was not faithful to his wife, Debbie. He had another girlfriend who he kept in a flat at Redfern. He called her his Sydney wife. But Debbie didn't take his fuckboy antics lying down. When she caught Nettie having an affair with another woman, she poured brake fluid all over the woman's car. But she didn't light it. Nah, there's a misstep. Nettie and Henry continued drinking heavily and committing brazened armed robberies around Sydney worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, but their drinking and lack of impulse control would eventually bring them undone. On December 15th, 1988, Henry started drinking at lunchtime and kept bar hopping and drinking all afternoon and into the night. Several sheets to the wind, he saw police prosecutor Mel Spence in the Lord Wolseley pub in Ultimo and accused Spence of telling people he was a police informer. Not content to just use his words, Henry stabbed the prosecutor in the stomach and then the neck. Mel Spence lived to tell the tale and Henry got six years in jail. Nettie's behaviour was also becoming more violent and erratic. On October 30th, 1997, after an all-day drinking session with Roger Rogerson, Nettie encountered a tow truck driver on the road who flicked his lights at him because he was double parked. Nettie lost his shit in a Hulk smash road rage attack and stabbed the truck driver. 34-year-old Ronnie Flavel managed to stagger across the road to a shop before he collapsed and died. Nettie was charged with murder. After receiving bail, he declared to the media on the courtroom steps, I will defend the charge. I'm not guilty. I never stabbed anyone. Did this pending murder charge slow Nettie down? Fuck no. He was planning a major armed robbery of Botany Council's Christmas payroll that would net him $160,000. Nettie told his wife Debbie that he was just going to pop out and get some cash for the kids' Christmas presents. But, 
and it's a big but, Tara. The police had him under surveillance and were tracking his every move. On the day of the heist, three sleeps before Christmas, 30 heavily armed police lay in wait. A stolen white van pulled up outside Botany Council and the door slid open to reveal three men dressed in identical tracksuits, gloves and ski masks, armed with sawn-off shotguns. Ironically, one registered to the New South Wales Police Department. <laughs> Police surrounded the men and told them to drop their weapons. They were laid out on the footpath on their bellies and handcuffed. On the ride back to the police station, Nettie was reported to say, Well, I'm fucked now. I wish you'd shot me. Nettie Smith was charged and convicted for armed robbery. He would also receive a life sentence for the stabbing murder of tow truck driver Ronald Flavel. Nettie was furious. What had happened to his green light? The fallen crime king was humiliated and seized his opportunity for revenge. The Independent Commission Against Corruption was investigating the New South Wales Police Force and from jail, Nettie kindly offered to assist them. Nettie was granted immunity against all crimes except murder in exchange for his testimony against allegedly corrupt police officers at the ICAC and the Wood Royal Commission hearings. Nettie Smith started talking about armed robberies and drug dealing that involved police and payments over the last 20 years. He made sworn statements against 97 police officers. Police, not to be outdone, were hoping to come up with ways to get back at Nettie. In the early 80s, Harvey Jones was a small-time crook, wannabe gangster and brothel owner who dressed flamboyantly and accessorised with lots of fake gold chains. Harvey had a friendly relationship with Nettie and thought being seen with him was his ticket to status and respect from the underworld. The former used car salesman was a lanky chap who held himself like a big man and cultivated notoriety. He also loved to party and draw attention to himself. Much like yourself, Tara. Oh yeah, well, one of Harvey's favourite party tricks was to go dancing at nightclubs, take his gun out and shoot it at the ceiling, terrifying other revellers and the club owners alike. Yeah, he got that move from me. Harvey had been charged for theft and had a court case pending. Apparently, Nettie had told him that he could use his connections to help Harvey buy his way out of the charge for $60,000. The New South Wales police being what they were back then, this doesn't sound far-fetched. The night before he disappeared, Harvey had been up to his old tricks, dancing his butt off and shooting his gun at the ceiling in a packed nightclub. This brought him more attention from the cops, and that is the last thing real gangsters want. On the night of July 15, 1983, Harvey, with Nettie's assistance, was due to make the $60,000 payoff to police. 29-year-old Harvey was last seen with Nettie at the Star Hotel in Alexandria. Nettie denied this, of course, and claimed to police after his disappearance that he was supposed to meet Harvey there that night, but he never turned up. The New South Wales police believed Nettie had killed Harvey and several others in gangland murders during the 70s and 80s, but Nettie certainly wasn't talking. Well, not about that anyway. While in prison, Nettie Smith wrote an autobiography called Nettie. Published in 1993, the book sold well but can't be relied upon as a great source of fact considering Nettie didn't own up to the murders he committed. It did, however, become the basis for a brilliant miniseries, Blue Murder, starring Richard Roxburgh as Roger Rogerson and Tony Martin as Nettie Smith. Blue Murder premiered in 1995 and if you haven't seen it, do yourselves a favour and get onto it. Damn straight. While writing his second book in prison, overcrowding meant that Nettie was forced to share a cell with an inmate who police dubbed Mr. Brown to protect his identity. 
The days and nights in Long Bay Prison didn't exactly fly by, and Mr Brown found himself listening to many stories Nettie told him of murders he committed but hadn't been nabbed for. Having a conscience despite his 20 years in the slammer, Mr Brown decided to work with authorities to tape these confessions. It was a risky operation, and a lo-fi one at that. In order to record Nettie's confessions, Mr Brown used a regular tape player and hoped to God Nettie didn't hear him press record. Mr Brown recorded conversations where Nettie told him that he'd shot Harvey Jones. Mr Brown said, He told me that he shot him, and he told me that he took his body up to botany and threw him in the water. He told me that Jones was crying, and he said, I'd die for you, Ned. And Ned said, Well, you're about to, you cunt. Ned told me then that I blew his heart out with a big three fifty seven. The motive for the murder? Yeah, Nettie said he killed Harvey because he found him annoying. It's also believed he wanted to keep the $60,000 in police hush money for himself. The authorities didn't want to use the recorded confessions against Nettie until they'd found Harvey's body and had a watertight case. During the recorded confessions, Nettie also boasted that he'd been involved in up to a dozen other murders, although he later claimed he'd made this up as he knew he was being recorded. Yeah, it's unlikely that he knew, or he would have smashed his fucking uh, head in. What did he say afterwards? Oh, I was just talking crap. Oh, yeah, I was just, you know, spinning a yarn. On Sunday, March 26, 1995, 12 years after Harvey's disappearance, a man walking his dog on the beach at Port Botany in Sydney South discovered a skull sticking out of a sandbank. Police believed it was the skeletal remains of Harvey Jones, as this had been a popular body-dumping site for underworld criminals in the 1980s. After the body was carefully excavated, an autopsy showed that he'd been shot twice in the chest and there were casings found with it that matched the 357. The forensic odontologist went searching for Harvey's dental records, but was dismayed to find that since they were over seven years old, they'd been destroyed. Instead, they had to come up with something else. Using a photo of Harvey smiling, they lined up the skull up on the same angle, superimposing the photo over it and ensuring the teeth and facial features matched up to those of the skull. It was a clear match and Nettie was charged with Harvey Jones's murder. Nettie's most high-profile confession on the Mr Brown tapes was the murder of sex worker and political corruption fighter Sally Ann Huckstep. Nettie described in chilling detail how he'd strangled her in Sydney Centennial Park. I hit her, punched her, choked her. There was a terror in her eyes and I left her floating there. I took her into the water and stood on her for five minutes. That was the most satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. After hearing Mr Brown's recordings, the Director of Public Prosecutions recommended Nettie be charged with the murders of Daniel Chubb, Barry McCann, Bruce Sandery, Luton Shue, Barry Croft and Sally Ann Huckstep as well. However, Magistrate Pat O'Shane dismissed the charges relating to Chubb, McCann and Croft. Nettie was charged with Sally Ann's murder, but a subsequent trial resulted in an acquittal. Charges of murder and the deaths of Bruce Sandery and Luton Shue were not proceeded with, but it made no difference to Nettie's future. His fate was sealed. He'd never walk as a free man again after he was convicted of the murder of Harvey Jones in 1998 and received a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Despite his taped confession and a jury finding him guilty of shooting Harvey dead, Nettie has always denied any involvement. Um, I think part of the issue with the tapes was that he didn't say their names. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so he might have described these murders that really fit in with the circumstances, but it was just, like, not quite enough. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, there's a whole threshold of um, evidence to find someone guilty of murder in Australia. It's it's quite high. Yeah, and this was just like not quite. Yeah, and a lot of murders, uh, you know, uh, they don't proceed with to trial because they just don't have enough evidence yeah. to make it a slam dunk. <sighs> Nettie's second book he wrote in prison was called Catch and Kill Your Own. Published in 1995, this disturbing tome promises to tell the true stories behind 37 underworld killings, all still officially listed as unsolved because the police don't want them solved. It went on to become a bestseller. In 2010, a now frail Nettie Smith appealed to serve his sentence under house arrest, saying, I'm not guilty, my health is not good. And I've done my time. 23 years is enough. His appeal was denied and retired New South Wales Police Assistant Commissioner John Laycock, who headed Task Force Snowy, which investigated 14 gangland murders linked to Nettie, said the only time he should come out is if he's horizontal. Nettie's health continued to plague him. In June 2016, he was rushed to hospital after suffering a heart attack, collapsing and smashing his head on the ground. In April 2017, Nettie tried to escape from captivity. The 72-year-old Long Bay prison resident was being treated for heart problems at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Randwick when he attempted to hot-foot it out of there. While one of the officers guarding him fell asleep and the other was focused on his laptop, Nettie, clad only in his hospital gown, slipped past them. His brazen escape attempt was thwarted when the hospital's nurses noticed him standing in the hallway attempting to pull the IV needle out of his arm. I can just imagine him shuffling down the hallway with his ass hanging out. Mm-hmm. The old bastard. Old bastard. Nettie Smith remains in Long Bay Jail. His crippling Parkinson's disease has been supplemented with dementia. His ex-wife Debbie has remarried and moved on with her life. He's a lonely old man on a one-way crawl to the grave. It's no longer possible for multiple murderer Nettie Smith, a shadow of his former self, to walk tall and fuck them all when he's behind bars with debilitating shakes hunched over in a wheelchair. It sounds like a fitting way to end his life, I think. Yeah, I agree. Hmm, what a story. Man, those guys used to get away with everything back then. Oh, they really did. Horrible, horrible times. And thanks to Sarah Campbell for suggesting that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It was certainly a wild ride. Hey, Tara. Yes, Barney? I have a question for you. Mm? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Why did you want to know? I would like to hear one. Oh, well, alrighty then. Do you have one? I always have one. 52-year-old father of 12, Kim Abrook, was woken up by the sound of creaking floorboards inside his Adelaide home at about 4am on Monday and saw a shadow in the light from his bedroom. Brooksy armed himself with a didgeridoo and went to investigate before finding an intruder near the front door. I was hoping it'd be a ghost. Well, ghosts wouldn't creak the boards, would they? They're pretty light. Oh, no, they rattle chains as well. Oh, you were hoping it was Kevin the Sexy Ghost. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. The, Kevin, the, horn, Kevin the Horny Ghost, <laughs> part two. The home invader scampered towards Lincoln Avenue with Brooksy giving chase, didgeridoo in hand, wearing nothing but his underpants in freezing temperatures, leading him to remark, Me out there in all my glory, I did notice that I run faster naked. Of the motive for the break-in, Brooksy said, Ah, oh, he was an opportunist. When he came knocking on opportunities, opportunities knocked back. I couldn't let him get away. 
Brooksy caught up with a 32-year-old thief less than 100 metres away at a house on the corner, but he couldn't find him in the dark. After telling his son Kyle and housemate Brad to keep watch and make sure the intruder didn't escape, Brooksy went home and called the cops. The police arrived within a few minutes and cordoned off the area around the house before police dog Nero found the suspect hiding under a car. He was in possession of a wallet and $500 in cash stolen during the break-in. Brooksy said, Ah, they got him on his knees. It was quite exciting. Would have been a lot worse if I caught up to him with my didgeridoo. When asked what he'd planned to do with the didgeridoo, our cheeky hero replied, I was going to play him a couple of quick tunes. I come from a large family. We know how to look after ourselves. Before adding, There are a lot of old people living here. I'm glad he came to my door. The suspect was charged with aggravated serious criminal trespass and theft. He was granted bail and is slated to appear in the Port Adelaide Magistrates Court in August. Don't mess with Brooksy, people. He will play didgeridoo in his underoos on your grave. Oh, wow. That was really in the news a lot the last week. Well, yeah, that's where the story ended, but um, there's actually been a bit of an addendum. Brooksy's heroics have uh, got him a new gig in an ad for St. Bernard's Fruit and Veg Market with owner John Capirius. In the ad, Brooksy comes in topless and carrying his didgeridoo saying, I've come down here to smash some prices. The owner, Jono, responds, Well, if you want to smash my prices down, get your ass inside my shop. <laughs> then the two go through the store discussing the discounts. So this just proves that fighting crime can be a lucrative endeavour and you get cut-priced bananas. Well, everyone likes cheap bananas. Uh, we all get them because Brooksy's a legend. Nice one, Brooksy. Yeah, thanks, Brooksy. You're the hero we need right now. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Oh, and uh, we, we got we got lots of drinks this week. Thanks very much to Mechanical Bionicle. Yeah, thank you. And also thanks to Dobby. Hey, Dobby. Oh, we'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. Um, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us uh, through our Facebook page, join our Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Dexter had a career day at school the other day. Yeah, I, I know what he dressed as. I know, he wanted to be a film director. <laughs> so I gave him a hat and a clapperboard and that was cool. But I said, are there any other jobs you'd like to do? And mm-hmm. he told me he wanted to be an ice cream reporter. Yeah, is that just like where you only do journalism without ice cream? Well, that's right. You know, you have a column in the New Yorker on different ice creams that have just come out. There's actually a show on SBS. It's a half-hour show. It's weekly, and it's all about ice cream. And I'm imagining, well, the people who do that probably are ice cream reporters. Well, he'll, pub- he'll probably become a whistleblower ice cream reporter Ooh. and get drummed out of journalism, and then he becomes a grizzled ice cream detective solving crimes related to ice cream. Yes, I can see his whole life yeah. flash before me now. And then it'll be a podcast about true crime ice cream time. <laughs> With Dexter Black. With Dexter Black. <laughs> okay, I'll-
like the sound of this. It sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I got spat on the other day when I was walking down the street. I'm surprised you didn't recognise me. <laughs> yeah, you look different. Um, like, I saw this guy walking towards me and he was having an argument with thin air, you know, like, just, like, yelling and stuff, like... Um, and then I realised that he'd almost, like, like... I was between him and the wall of, like, a building and I was like, shit, I probably better not be there. I should go, like, on the outside. And I was trying to get out of his way when he just yelled at me, like, you're a fucking liar! Fortunately, he wasn't very tall, so and he was a, an ice head, so he didn't have a lot of fluid oh, in his mouth. Hit you in the groin, did it? Yeah, pretty much. No, I just got a tiny spray like on my chest. It missed the face. Um, now I'm thinking it wasn't deliberate. I didn't recognise him, and he didn't say, "This is for not being case file." Yeah. So I figure it was just like a random like ice head attack. Hang on a second, you're not sword and scale. Yeah, well that's well. Or maybe you mm. maybe you thought you were sword and scale. <laughs> it really depends which camp you're in on that oh, one. That's right. Uh, but I yeah, have no opinion. It was it was weird though. My first thought was like, well, of course, like I, I called him a fucking cunt and told him to fuck off, and then he swore more at me, and then he kind of scampered off. Um, but I thought, that's it, I'm calling the police. And then I was like, mm, really, the spit police? The split, the spit police are going to come and what solve your spit crime? Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I figured I'd probably just just suck it up. I mean, if you're not wearing pants, people can wear the pants police. They exist. Well, yeah, that's a true thing, but the that's spit true police thing. not so much. No, that that's not real. Yeah, so it got spat on. Wasn't podcasting related. Yeah, well, I still enjoyed that story. Well, of course you did. You wish it was you that did it. It was. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> what the fuck was that? So warming up exercise. A lot, oh. of, a lot of theatrical people have to do a little few warm ups. Oh, right. Like, um, cunt, 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 cunt. Who <laughs> <laughs> was a person who does scales of, as an orangutan, as a chimpanzee? <laughs> I think it was you. I think it was Rob Brydon. Oh, right. Okay, you know what? That would be something he yeah, would do. Yeah. Hello, children. It's time to hear a story. Today we're going to talk to you about some murders. How many murders are we going to talk about today, Barney? 69. <laughs> well, that sounds very exciting, doesn't it, children? It really does. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And so is Mr. Ted. Hello, Mr. Ted. Would you like to go on a picnic? He can't talk because he's got a ball gag on. That's true. He's got one in his mouth and one where the sun don't shine. <laughs> That's his anus, children. Yeah. Do you have an anus, children? Yes, we all have an anus, children. Some people have 12. Mm, those people are very lucky indeed. Well, I mean, you know, we were told that we spoke like children's entertainers. I think we should lean into it. <laughs> Madison? What about that name? Do you oh, like that I used name? to love the name Madison when I was a kid and I had Barbies and stuff. I, I would have wanted to be like a blonde tan girl named Madison who came from a rich family. Yeah. That would have been my dream. I wanted to be like the most basic bitch you can imagine. That was my dream. Like Barney. Like Barney. I wanted to be a basic, bland, blonde bitch like Barney. <laughs> hey, that's me. Yeah, ready with the assonance. Oh, no, that was the alliteration. Oh, I just thought of you and the word ass came to mind. Ah. Mm, you know how that is. The, well, that's how all good bum tongue starts. Ah, well, I mean, you need a bum to play bum tongue. Ah. Tongues are optional, strangely enough. Ah. Oh, you want to play finger bum? Finger bum. I was thinking like a tongue in a shoe. Mm. <laughs> oh, shoe tongue bum. Something about a little box with a mirror and a tongue inside. 
What you told me then got me so hot I knew that we could bum tongue. Get off. It's Prince. Oh. Oh. 23 positions in a one night stand. <laughs> I'll only call you after if you tell me I can't. What's wrong with you? Let a woman be a woman and a man be a man. What, 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 what is wrong with if you? If you want to, baby, here I am. Where, here I who am. are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Prince. Am I, where am I? I don't know what's going on. I just had to do that. It made me happy, but, like, you know, Get it probably out. wouldn't make anyone else happy. Leave. I would like to. I'll I've... be at the pub. Finish the episode yourself. Fucko. By now, Nettie had learned that violence was power, and if he was going to survive, he had to fucking do something. Yeah, he's just like, get get your shit together, Nettie. <laughs> punch your grandma on the chops again, Nettie. Yeah, punch in the face and then pull your finger out, Nettie. Ooh, of her face? Yeah, of his bum. Oh, oh, so he's got one finger in his bum, and he's punching his nana in the face with the other one. I love these Australian true crime stories. Yeah, yeah, they're interesting, aren't they? They really are. Is that all right? It's good. I'm fucking fine there. I'm next, am I? I didn't mark that bit. Oh, you can't. Oh, fuck. My you never, by the way, did you, did you know that this happens every special, pretty I, much? I marked it there. The, the pen. <laughs> you, your, your theory is always, I'll oh, remember. And I'm like, well, I know I no, wouldn't. No, I didn't. I, did, <laughs> I, put it, I used a pen. You used a pen when it like, wrote in invisible ink. Do you need some lemon juice and a candle? I'm going to put my foot in your ass. You can't reach from over there. Also, my ass, I, it has a sign. It says... Um, exit only. Exit only. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, can't yeah, get it, past that. I've got ex, a guard dog. Exit only. Star Barney's foot allowed. Uh, no, there is no addendum to my exit only sign. <laughs> no? No. He's child... Well, uh, child... Ha, 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 childhood... <laughs> It's hard. It's hard. Well, I'm sorry, y'all. That's what the man said. Right. And listen. When I catch an answer. This is hauntingly beautiful like our early episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sure that sounded just like episode three. Nettie was now a mountain of a man standing at six foot six inches tall and weighing over... Having a six foot six inch cock, mm. and his balls weighing over two hundred and thirty pounds each. <laughs> oh lord, he needed reinforced undies, didn't he? Yeah. Besides the usual thieving, pimping, and armed robbery, Nettie became involved in strong arm debt collecting. <laughs> I speak that language like, like in the um, oh, the gods must be crazy. Wackity smackity. People call it that. They don't. Wackity smackity. They don't. People no, do one, call no, it that. They don't. That's what people call it. They, they call wackity smackity. Mm-mm, not a thing. Yeah. It is not. Not a thing. You no walk, one calls you walk it down, that. You walk down the street, you know. And I live in a gigantic heroin yeah, area. Yeah, and they go, hello, governor, you want some wackity smackity? No, they don't. They go, you chasing? You chasing? My name's you not Jason. J- my name's not Jason. Well, it was ironic when it was Jason, wasn't it? <laughs> it really was. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> oh, so you sure they don't go, hello, governor, you want some wackety smackety? I am quite sure that nobody calls it wackety smackety, Barney. That's wickety whack. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty shit gag. 
You suggested it and I wrote it. Yep. It was, you know <laughs> well, what it was? It was fucking shit teamwork. It was shit teamwork. <laughs> it started off shit. It got shit, then it got shitter. And together we made it worse than if just one of us had made it shit. You had to bend down to pick up a pen and I didn't think you were going to get back up again. <laughs> you are. Yeah, well, that's the end of Barney. I knew, I knew it'd go that way. It's the closest thing you've done to a sit-up in 35 years. <laughs> Barry Sugarcroft. Was... Hey, baby. Hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> was he fancy? Oh, he was fancy. Was he a fancy yeah. man? He was sweet. <laughs> They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.